When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. It never quite felt like a real company, but the drama and the size of it and the acquisitions were something that no one could ignore. It's the summer of 1991. Maxwell owns Macmillan and he owns the New York Daily News. From the outside, he looks like he's on top. But if anyone could take a close look, they'd see that Maxwell was in trouble. I like numbers. So if you sat up all night with various reports and filings to different agencies, you could quite often put together a picture. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm director of a think tank in London called the Institute for Government. And as far as the Maxwells go, I led their investigation into the collapse of Robert Maxwell's empire. Before Bronwyn ran a think tank, she was a journalist at the Financial Times newspaper. She was suspicious that Maxwell was in real trouble, but it wasn't an easy sell. Her editor at the paper needed to be convinced that Maxwell's empire could possibly be in enough trouble that it was worth their print. And the editor said, look, all right, all right, all right. Uh, please keep on writing about supermarkets and uh, company results, as we're asking. And you, uh, you can write about uh, Maxwell, but uh, I'll give you a quarter of the time of one researcher in the library. And he said, all right, see, see where you can get on finding out about his debt. And so I started in about um, July, August of, of 1991, trying to put together a map of Maxwell's companies. It was a mess. There were around 800 registered companies. And some of them were subsidiaries of other, other ones. The only way to understand the state of Robert's finances was to investigate the status of every one of these companies. So she got a hold of the public records for each of these companies and started to create a map how they were all linked. And I started spreading them out on one corner of the Financial Times floor and started getting very sardonic looks from my colleagues who were producing much more copy than I was at the time. And I was really feeling quite ill at ease. She emailed me a picture of her work that eventually moved from the newsroom floor to a half-page spread in the newspaper. I simplified the 800-odd companies. And at the top, you have Robert Maxwell and his family. And then you have below that really something called Headington Investments. 29 years later, the map has a blue hue to it on the yellowing paper. What she pieced together looks like the most anxiety-inducing version of Shoots and Ladders. And that was the gateway to a lot of his private companies. And then there were... What Maxwell kept in his head was a labyrinth. Anyone else who thought they understood the Maxwell fortress and the amount of gold in it probably only had a view of one wing or maybe just one hallway. But Maddox now believed she had a bird's eye blueprint of the whole thing, something no one else had been able to put together. 
It was built like many fortresses were built. You built the inner keep, and you built some other showy bit you want to show off, and then you add on bits and bedrooms and rooms and <laughs> uh, amphitheaters and guard rooms and extra walls or whatever. It was a very haphazard construction. That haphazard construction had so far shielded Maxwell's finances from prying eyes. But Maddox now had the key to the castle, and it didn't look good. And for those inside the company, it was clear things were falling apart. He thought that Maxwell bugged the office. He was uh, going to be very careful about what was said. Something huge was happening. Maxwell's secrets were slipping out. The man who held up an armor of smoke and mirrors for over 40 years was about to be exposed. I'm Tara Palmieri. From something else, this is Power, The Maxwells. Episode 6, Who Pays? Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Maxwell thought his entire life. He was always cunning, always quick, always able to stay ahead of the game. But by 1991, the bouncing check was 68 years old and flat-footed. Money problems were catching up with him. The press, the banks, even his employees were closing in on him. Under the stress, it started to become clear he was past his prime. Here's Maxwell's chief of staff, Peter Jay, from a BBC interview. I mean, I sometimes find myself in the role of a sort of ventriloquist, whispering to him the name of the person he was talking to. Maxwell did not age gracefully. Here's Roy Greenslade. Look, he lost his temper a lot, firing temporary secretaries, trying to fire people working at the mirror on a whim. It's only in retrospect that we can see that that was probably indicative of the stress he was under. But at the time, we just thought that was Maxwelliana, the very famous planet on which he lived. Robert Maxwell was never easy. But when things really started going badly, the worst of Maxwell was revealed. But there were some who would stand up to Maxwell, including Carol Bergoli's boss, the now deceased Peter Laster, a director for one of Maxwell's companies. One day, Laster called Bergoli in. He thought that the office had been bugged by, by Maxwell and that he was uh, going to be very careful about what was said. Maxwell wasn't just bugging rooms, but phones too. With all of his businesses, with everything he had to do, he spent his time listening in on his employees, but they didn't know this yet. Still, just knowing Maxwell had bugged the office was disturbing for Bergoli. And if that in itself wasn't unsettling, Leicester had a request that would put Bergoli in Maxwell's line of fire. He said to me, no, nobody's to know who's at the meeting. Leicester pulled Bergoli aside one day to ask for help organizing a secret meeting with the directors. And Maxwell had banned any director's meeting without Kevin, Ian, or himself being present. 
This was a multi-billion dollar company on the ninth floor of a ritzy office. They shared the building with Goldman Sachs. There was a helipad on the roof. And yet the people Maxwell hired at the top of his company weren't allowed to meet without the boss or his offspring. That sounds to me more like a supreme leader than the head of a public company. But that's just how it was. With Bergoli's help, Lacer arranged a meeting with the directors without the Maxwells, and they were petrified. Peter Lacer suspected that the, that the room was bugged. They were passing notes to each other with comments. It was becoming clear that the company was in bad shape, and whatever was written on those notes, Maxwell didn't want the directors discussing it. Shortly after the secret meeting, Bergoli was called into Leicester's office again. I think he said there's something rotten in the state of Denmark or something like that. He must have had the bugs removed at that stage, I think. Fison said to me that there had been something really, you know, really bad, he said to me, and I'm going to dictate a letter to you and I want you to take it round by hand and bring the disc straight back to me and there's to be no copy. Bergoli said she understood and sat down to type the letter. And he just about stood over me while I did it. He was very hovering, you know, hovering. Leicester proceeded to dictate that the directors knew Maxwell had taken Mirror Group's pension fund. This was the company's retirement money for all employees of all of the Mirror Group newspapers and Maxwell Communications. Millions of pounds saved for every staff member's retirement Money that was supposed to be invested in safe and reliable plans. Gone. Here's David Leal Bennett. We spoke to him last episode. He's the banker for National Westminster that Maxwell was late to pay back. And whilst you would normally invest them in a a group of companies to get a reasonable return and so forth, they chose to invest them in, guess what? Lend them to Robert Maxwell Group. That's right. Maxwell invested the pension money of all of his employees in his own companies. Yeah, I mean, it was just, it's just incestuous in the, in the extreme. And if this got out to the public, Maxwell would most likely be arrested. Peter Leister realized what was happening, and he, along with the rest of the directors, issued an ultimatum. It just said, if the money is not put back by a certain date, they are going to all resign and, and blow it. And it was the resignation of every single one of the board, apart from the Maxwells, of course. And he said to me, you're not to tell a soul about it. If anybody got wind of this, he said, it could bring the company down. The next thing she heard, the director's threat worked. No one quit. The business kept running, but Maxwell was not happy. That constrained him and that maddened him uh, because anyone who stood in his way, it was anathema to him, the idea that he could be thwarted. The pressure was getting to everyone. Bergoli remembers one exchange that captured the moment. She went into one director's office. He had his head in his hands and he was physically distraught and upset. He said, no one's going to employ me. But I mean, they were all so stressed and so worried about about their future. It wasn't just the employees who were stressed. As the summer of 91 turned to fall, with fewer and fewer options, Maxwell himself seemed to be crumbling. He had a cold he couldn't shake, and his doctors had diagnosed him with coronary artery disease and an enlarged heart. The once nicknamed Bouncing Check, known for being light on his feet, was gone. 
There was a change in him a couple of times. He looked a bit unkempt, you know. There were buttons off his shirt and and he didn't look very smart. Um, I think, with hindsight, I believe he was starting to lose the plot a bit, I do. It seems to me that it would have felt like this. Imagine you're on the Titanic, but you know it's the Titanic. You know an iceberg is inevitable. You just don't know exactly when it's going to hit. But you know it could be any day now. And then one day, Leicester called Bergoli into his office again. He called me in and said to me, uh, Robert Maxwell's missing from his boat. He looked, you know, quite amazed. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, they can't find him. He's been missing for so many hours. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Maxwell going missing was an earthquake that set off a chain of events that would shake hundreds of thousands of people to varying degrees. Maxwell was big and mysterious. The only person who saw the whole picture was the man himself, and maybe his sons, Kevin and Ian. And then, of course, the Financial Times reporter, Bronwyn Maddox. I started adding up the debt and got to a figure. Remember her from the top of the episode? I'll read you what we reported at the time. Not only had she managed to map out all of Maxwell's 800 or so companies, she believed she calculated his net worth. The total debt of the Maxwell web of companies could have been more than three billion sterling, with one billion debt in the private companies. The end result? Maxwell owed more than he had, by a lot. And that appears to have been more than one billion greater than the company's net assets. Maddox found that if you sold every piece of the Maxwell empire, he'd still owe a billion pounds. But she still needed confirmation, so she went to see Kevin Maxwell. Maddox didn't know that Kevin had been begging banks for money for the past couple of months. She didn't know if once Kevin saw her figures, he'd laugh her out of the room. Or maybe he'd threaten to sue. I waited for longer than you might think on the special carpet that had Maxwell Communications printed into it with the globe and the big M and the kind of red circle. Eventually, Kevin showed up. He was very friendly uh, and shook my hand. I said, look, well, I've drawn up this map of the companies and this is the debt that I think they've got. And he looked at it and he said, well, we don't put it quite like that ourselves, but yes, that is broadly the right figure. A billion in debt. In today's money, that's close to $3 billion. That was the motivating force that had led them to ask for emergency loans, to try to make up money, and to steal their employees' pensions. But Kevin played it cool. It wasn't a secret. His demeanor was certainly that it was manageable. It's always a funny thing about 
the Maxwell debt, it was manageable unless his shareholders and bankers collectively lost faith, in which case it would instantly become unmanageable. Plenty of companies today run massive debts. Uber, Spotify, Airbnb, they're all loss-making businesses. But as long as investors believe that they will one day be profitable, they're usually happy to keep giving them money on the gamble they'll make more back in the future. This was held up by confidence. And if collective confidence went, there is no way that it would all have um, sustained itself. But that's the thing. Everyone had lost confidence. Banks were calling in their debts. When Maddox left Kevin, she didn't know that. She was just happy all her work had been broadly confirmed. Then that same day, when she got back to the office. And then this extraordinary message flashed out across the bottom of the the screens. Nothing definite, just Robert Maxwell missing at sea. Robert Maxwell is missing tonight, lost at sea off the island of Tenerife in the Atlantic. Uh, Every word of which is kind of extraordinary. We've spent a lot of time on the spectacle surrounding his death and the theories that have sprouted out of it. But in that moment, when Maxwell went missing, it meant something entirely different for the people who knew him and his businesses. I did think he's probably going to do a runner, you know. Most people thought that he'd just been spirited away off his boat and get away from the heat, go over to um, Eastern Europe somewhere and just disappear because he was in so much trouble. Peter Calico, the owner of the New York Post, heard the news. My editor called me up and said, there's a 300-pound body floating off the Canary Islands. It must be Maxwell. Who do you think it's going to be, a 300-pound guy off a huge yacht? There's only one guy in the world like that. Why was there a new stewardess on the boat? Why was the captain new? He took nobody, really, that knew him on that trip, which is really not really like him because he didn't like strangers much. He didn't trust them. Just hours before Maxwell disappeared, Goldman Sachs was going to sell their Maxwell stocks, which would have basically been yelling to the public and all other investors, we don't think Maxwell's a good investment anymore. We're cutting our losses. I think they told Maxwell of that, I'm pretty sure, uh, that they were going to do that. And I think he knew that was going to mean that his debts were going to be called in in a way that he couldn't repay. It, it, was, it was someone's dream. It never had a modern corporate feel to it, ever. Things like, you know, the big helicopter clattering down onto the roof of the Mirror Group headquarters in, in Hoban Circus in London, you know, that was him. Making much too much noise and all the neighbours complained and all that kind of thing. It never felt like a modern professional company. But the drama and the size of it and the acquisitions were something that no one could ignore. You knew you were looking at someone's dream. Maxwell lived a fantasy, and now the world would deal with the reality he left behind. Oh my God, what's going to happen now? Because he was the kingpin. It's a big issue, big deal when someone like that dies. Once Maxwell was officially dead, the ship started sinking. Fast. Here's Bregoli. I couldn't leave the building because the building was besieged by reporters from all, you know, all over the world, really. Bergoli said most of her time after Maxwell's death is a blur, but she does remember coming into work one day to see that the office had been turned upside down. Came in one day and found all the drawers just busted open. And then these, you know, big, rough-type guys standing there and telling me that that, um, I wasn't to touch anything. Um, And then 
It wasn't very pleasant after that, I can tell you. The serious fraud office came in and collected whatever they could find. Bergoli later found out that they took out all of Maxwell's bugs and replaced them with their own. The banks and the government were going to sort through everything. The directors did the only thing they could. Some of the directors raided Maxwell's wine cellar. They got a few bottles of wine. I got one too. I got a bottle of red wine. Don't drink red wine. It was probably really expensive. I gave it to the motorbike messenger boy. I said, do you drink drink red wine? He said, yeah. So I gave him it. That was fun. But Bergoli, who at the time was recently divorced, knew she'd soon be unemployed. I do remember sitting down and thinking, it's just like, this is a train crash, you know, and I'm, I'm in the middle of it. And uh, I was worried about everybody else, all their jobs. And then I suddenly thought, well, what's going to happen to me too? I won't have a job. The days were clearly numbered for the employees who worked for Maxwell directly. But what about the people all around the world at his other companies? Many would deal with chaotic sales. It seemed like it wouldn't make too much of a difference who owned the company. But then... One of Maxwell's biggest debts is the 400 million pounds or so missing from the Mirror Pension Fund. Today it was revealed that 300 million was stripped away. But the pension money that Bergoli and the directors thought was returned, well, when he died, turns out it was still missing. That's after the break. After the directors threatened to quit if Maxwell didn't return the money from the pension funds he'd invested in his own businesses, Maxwell reassured them. But when he died, the pension money was gone. 440 million pounds were missing from Maxwell Communications and the Mirror Group newspapers. 32,000 people had the rug pulled out from underneath them. Here's David Leal Bennett, an Amir pension fund victim from a BBC documentary. And that's horrible. I mean, you think about it, you worked your whole life. We say you worked 30, 40 years, and you get nothing. Nothing at all. I paid a pension for 45 years. If I lose it, that means half of my income will have gone. Here's Roy Greenslade. We discovered that um, the man who had saved the mirror, um, as the headline famously said on his death, uh, was in fact the man who'd plundered the mirror. And I think the shock was extraordinary. I think the idea that this man famously in a video um, urging people to join the pension fund. It is in your and your family's best interest to remain a member of whichever pension scheme you are a member of. He had taken money from his employees' future, robbed their future. Stephanie Kirsten worked for the Muir Group before Maxwell took over. At 17, she started working at the paper as a temp. She remembers Maxwell rolling up in a gold Rolls Royce, wearing a baseball cap, and claiming that everything was going to be marvelous. When Maxwell bought the Mirror newspaper in 1984, employees had a pretty good package of benefits. During his reign, they were slowly stripped away. It was like drip, drip, drip. He did away with all our conditions. He did away with the health insurance, did away with the food to check up. Basically did away with everything, really. And then, after nearly 13 years of working at the Mirror Group, Maxwell's death cost Kirsten her job. I got a payoff. It was 16,000 at the time, so I was sort of going to have to live on that, you know, because this is it. She didn't choose to work for Maxwell. 
She didn't want him to be her boss. And yet she was one of tens of thousands whose life was upended because of him. I mean, because, well, in a way, he got away with it. So, you know, we just felt that there's nobody that's accountable for this. To Kirsten, Maxwell's convenient death was one last middle finger to his employees. Now he didn't have to deal with the broken lives he left behind. But all hope wasn't lost. His sons, Ian and Kevin, were still alive. It's hard to explain the enormity of this news story. Reporters hounded the families of Maxwell's children, day and night, camped outside their homes, demanding answers, knocking on the door in the hope that they'd get a photo or a soundbite. But not every knock was from a journalist. Piss off, you don't get up for an hour. But in actuality, on June 18, 1992, it was the cops at the door. Kevin and Ian were charged with fraud. They were about to be main characters in a high-profile runaway court case. Lawyers would spend three years preparing for the trial. It's hard to tell what it was like for Maxwell's sons in those years awaiting trial. But of course, they wouldn't spend the time behind bars. Though Kevin filed for bankruptcy, he also bought a new big house. He still dined at fine restaurants and flew business class. While the family was trying to figure out how to live in a world without Captain Bob, jurors were being selected. They had to agree to be willing to sit for six months and have zero awareness of Robert. If they said they read newspapers, they were questioned further. The jury had no idea what they were getting into. The case hinged on proving that Ian and Kevin had deceived the bankers and that they knew there was no way of ever repaying them back. Here's Maddox again. It was only if someone understood the whole picture and understood that the whole organization was incapable of paying back the money that it had borrowed from some other part of itself. It it was only illegal, broadly, if someone knew that the money could never be repaid. And knowledge is an incredibly hard thing to prove in law. To try and prove that point, the prosecution would call in former employees and bankers who worked with the Maxwells, including David Leal Bennett. My witness statement ran into over 100 pages. It was, with all the attachments to it, it was probably about 12 inches high. To get to that stage, probably two or three years. It hadn't been an easy couple of years for Leal Bennett. After catching Maxwell trying to cheat the system in his final months, he then had to see the company through liquidation. The stress of it all had strained his marriage. And now he was at the end of a long road. He just had to make it through the trial. So there were four lawyers representing them, and there was one prosecution. He took the stand. Not a word exchanged between Leal Bennett and the Maxwells. Kevin, who he used to talk to regularly, didn't look at him once. And it was horrible. It was horrible. I mean, the prosecution was fine because they went through it illogically, but each one of those four lawyers all had a pop at you. It was absolutely awful. And they were putting the banks down as, you know, greedy people, which, you know, is a good, it's a good argument, but it didn't, it didn't focus on the real issue, which these guys were ripping off the pensioners. So how did Kevin defend himself? he played the victim of his father. In his opening statement, he described Robert as frightening. He said that his dad would say things like, are you comparing yourself with me? 
he worked the sympathy angle with the jurors, much like Robert had when he wept about the Holocaust while testifying against Private Eye. He accused the prosecutor of bullying him, and he rambled, confusing the listeners to exhaustion. He was clearly a student of Maxwelliana. When those tactics didn't seem to work, Kevin claimed his memory was foggy. According to biographer Tom Bauer, Kevin, who was in his mid-30s, said he had a bad memory over 100 times. And if that didn't work, he tried anger. Bauer said his face would blacken with anger. His eyes reddened as he shot back at the prosecutor. I cannot believe you are asking me that question. Things were not going his way, but Kevin landed a good blow towards the end. He was asked why he didn't leave the company given everything that was going on. He said, I couldn't abandon him when there were problems. Ultimately, our motivation was not to conspire to defraud pensioners. It was to save this one group. I suppose that my greatest regret is that we failed. Bauer said people's eyes were moist. After 32 weeks with Kevin on the stand for 21 days, the jury had heard enough. I firmly believe that he was, he should have been found guilty, is my, is my view. We felt incredibly cheated, really. You know, we, we had nobody, you know, to blame. But when does a white-collar crime story actually end like that? It was difficult to comprehend from the, a layperson. Picking 12 different people to sit in their courtroom for a long time. I don't know how many weeks it was. I mean, one woman was blinking knitting. Yeah, I mean, you think, you think this is meant to be British justice. For the record, Maddox and Greenslade feel like the man who should have been held responsible was gone, and the jury agreed. Not guilty. Bauer wrote that when the verdict was reached, the ghost of Robert Maxwell bellowed in laughter. When I think about Maxwell now, I keep coming back to what Maddox said. It was someone's dream. It never had a modern corporate feel to it. Maddox says Maxwell's story isn't modern, but to me, he feels ahead of his time. The all-too-familiar lack of accountability is the real tragedy. But there is a silver lining. For Bagoli and Kirsten and the 32,000 other pension fund victims, after nearly four years of worrying, the pension money was largely recovered. The government paid 100 million pounds and they were able to recoup 276 million in out-of-court settlements with investment banks, accountants, and what was left of Maxwell's companies. Of course, that didn't cover the emotional distress felt by everyone who was touched by Maxwell, including his one-time favorite banker, Leal Bennett. After the trial, he was utterly exhausted. He went back to work to hear his boss say, You've been through the mill. I don't want to see you. Just go away. Take as long as you want. And whether he had spoken to my wife or not, I do not know. But I got home and she said, Right, it's finished. I've booked us a holiday. (laughs) And we went to Ireland. The mess had brought them close to divorce, but they are still married to this day. And that's not the only love story. Carol Bergoli, out of a job and low on cash, called her friend to ask for help. Her friend told her to fly to New Zealand and stay with her. So I went out there for a month and I met my late husband, my Kiwi guy, ended up staying there. So I was sitting there thinking, what's going to happen to me? And then the universe picked me up and dumped me the other side of the world and gave me the most wonderful life I could have ever, ever had. So in a way, I'm really grateful to Robert Maxwell because, you know... <laughs> That wouldn't have happened to me if he hadn't 
jumped or was pushed or so I don't I don't have an axe to grind with him. I really don't. Not everyone is so forgiving. Some pension fund victims have joined a group to try to recover more of the money. It's a sort of support group where people can share their stories about being screwed over by Maxwell. Kirsten and other victims from the group even planned a special trip. We went to Tenerife, you know, which was where he took his boat. We sort of went in his footsteps. We went out and we sort of swam with the fishes, with the dolphins, we took a boat out. And then on the last day, we went to this hotel that he went to that was really expensive. And so, I mean, we couldn't afford to eat there or anything. We, we just could have better afford to have, have a drink. And um, we had these nice dresses on. So we sort of, we opened the dresses and we had these t-shirts made. We, Maxwell stole my pension and Maxwell's face on them. But I mean, everybody was looking at us because a lot of people didn't really know who Maxwell was. But um, anyway, it made us feel better. You know, we sort of saw the, all the things that he saw, really. We didn't go overboard. We just went on the boat. We got, went back, so. The Maxwell empire was sold off piece by piece. For companies like Macmillan and The Daily News, Maxwell is just a footnote in their history. But for Maxwell's employees, he upended their lives. If you were a pension victim, those four years of uncertainty were life-changing. Things turned out okay for Kirsten, Leal Bennett, and Bergoli, but that shouldn't take away from the story about someone pissing on the heads of the commoners. I'm Tara Palmieri. From something else, this is Power, the Maxwells. Next week in the final chapter, we look at how the long shadow Maxwell left behind has impacted his children and our world today. And then I say to her, look, Gillette, when we met, we were both broke. I'm still broke. You live in a townhouse. How did you do this? And she gets really twitchy. Power of the Maxwells is written and presented by me, Tara Palmieri. Producers are Paul Smith and Grant Irving. Story editor is Dasha Lissitzina. Our executive producer is Tom Koenig. Original music by Nolan Schneider. Engineering and scoring by Spoke Media and NPAL Audio. Our visual designers are Emma Lansdowne and Alex Elder. Special thanks to Ella McLeod, Joe Sykes, Russell Finch, Peggy Sutton, Steve Ackerman, and Mark Rivers. Mark Rivers.